Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Steph shares his very unusual path into venture capital. We learn how his lack of traditional background both helped and hurt him repeatedly throughout his career. Listen to find out why he thinks he was successful and why when you drop out of VC, it's so hard to get back in. Learn one piece of critical advice he'd give his younger self and his future plans. Enjoy. This was a really fun episode. All right, Steph, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Such a pleasure. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I'm a venture capitalist by training. I've been a VC since 2013. Um, before that, I worked in ING Bank, which is where I got started. Uh, and before that, I studied a double degree, one in science majoring in biotechnology and another one in uh, majoring in economics. Uh, so that's kind of a very high level, and I'm sure we'll drill into that. For sure. Um, and then specifically, so when you started um, like in, in undergrad, was finance or VC ever an interest for you? Yeah. Uh, so it actually took me a very long time to decide what I wanted to do professionally. And people mm -hmm. used to tell me all the time, you know, don't worry so much about the future. But in retrospect, the fact that I got where I did seems so unlikely and serendipitous that I, I really feel like I should have been a lot more worried. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I tried. I spoke to career counselors, um, but no one gave me concrete information over what salaries looked like across industries or, you know, what a day in the life would look like for different professions. Um, and I landed on finance kind of by accident. You know, I, I enjoyed uh, economics school mm -hmm. and I knew some of my parents' friends who studied economics and who had been very successful in their careers. And I liked watching uh, Dragon's Den, which was kind of the early British version of Shark Tank before it became all Americanized. Um, cool. And, you know, that was the that was the primordial soup from which my, my econ major emerged. But without much more focus than that, you know, I, I could have easily been very lost when I graduated. I only found out about halfway through my degree that if you wanted to be an economist, you really had two options in New Zealand. You could go work for the treasury mm -hmm. or you could go work for, for the central bank, which is kind of what the Fed is here. Mm -hmm. um, and you were very unlikely to get either job because of the number of applicants. And frankly, even if you did get uh, those jobs, you know, the pay wasn't great. So I kind of ended up, I remember having this feeling, you know, why wasn't that pasted front and center on my econ prospectus when I was making my major choice? And a little later, I was attending this leadership program um, that attracted many people from very high paying jobs, you know, lawyers, engineers. 
And I remembered they were all very impressed with this one guy in the program who had just been offered a job as an investment banker. And I think my thought process basically went something like, these guys are impressive. The impressive guys think the banker is impressive. Therefore, banking is impressive. And I'm going to become a banker. And that was the, the sophistication that went to that life-altering decision. Uh, and so, you know, I started to look into it. And that's when I landed on uh, Wall Street Oasis. And, you know, finally, I found a community of people where people actually talk about compensation. They talk about progression. They talk about exit opportunities. This was mm -hmm. all stuff that I was just starving for when I was studying. Um, and with that, I also landed on the harrowing realization that if I really wanted to be an investment banker, I would have had to apply already to certain schools. I would have had to have been networking with certain people. And I hadn't done almost anything right to date. And I just felt like uh, it was year? all going to be, this would have been... Like sophomore I mean, year? Or junior yeah, year. this would have been probably about... So I, I did two undergraduate degrees in tandem. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a, a five-year program. So this would have probably been around 2007. Okay. Uh, yeah, about two, three years in, into my program. Yeah. Um, and, you know, many years later, I actually had uh, an associate who we hired out of... Um, out of NYU's MBA program. Mm -hmm. And he made the point kind of really just casually offhand that information about opportunities is often, you know, one of the largest barriers to moving up in your career. And that just landed on me like a hammer that just resonated with me so strongly in terms of kind of where my path had taken me. Yeah. So yeah, you know, on the one hand, I wish I had more guidance and focus. And on the other hand, I'm really glad I didn't because perhaps if I knew too much, it would have seemed like such an uphill battle that I would have never even tried. Mm. And I think I landed in this beautiful sweet spot between ambition, hubris, and delusions of grandeur that just really let me do what I did. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> very, much, very much an accident and, and not a straightforward path to, to getting here. So let's talk about kind of um, being at such a small school in yeah. New Zealand of all places, like what are the prospects in New Zealand for investment banking? Are there a few shops there? Are there, what's it? Yeah, hardly any. Yeah. Uh, so, so Macquarie is over there. Um, but, but yeah, no, not, not many. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I was, um, I was at university. I'm just kind of trying to take myself back to that. I'm, I'm at university. I want to get into investment banking. The traditional route seemed close to me. Mm -hmm. And so really with, without kind of a clear path to that, I started taking opportunities that seemed like they would get me one step closer, even if they didn't get me there. And Wall Street Oasis gave me this vocabulary heat map of sorts, right? It included words like analyst and banking and fund. And that became my North Star. So if I couldn't go straight to being an investment banker, every job I took had to at least get me a little closer. Uh, and at some point, I got the opportunity to go join ING Bank on something that at the time was called the ISIC Management Traineeship, um, which I very unorthodoxly arranged as a sort of rotational management traineeship through several departments. Okay. Uh, and this had nothing to do with finance, right? I would be joining their internal communications department. Um, but it had the word bank and bank was on my career <laughs> word cloud. <laughs> so I figured, you know, I might meet people doing the investments uh, in that role. And then I would kind of weasel my way in that way. It's not, and, it's a, it's not horrible to think <laughs> that way. At least you're in the right kind of uh, right firm. Right? Yeah, kind of, except when the opportunity finally did come, you know, I had an opportunity to tour a trading floor. So we were just doing this report on what was happening. This was the height of the global financial crisis, you know, what, yep. what was going on. Yep. And I kind of asked around, you know, what would it take for me to work here? 
but I ran into a variant of the preparation problem again. So unlike in the US, um, I, I went to the Netherlands to, to do this internship because um, IMG is headquartered in, in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. So in the Netherlands, most people get a master's degree. Uh, and so, you know, suddenly, oh, wow, there was this extra step now that I had to take if, if I even wanted to, you know, work at a bank over here. So I studied for my GMAT. I pulled out a half decent score. I applied to one of the top business schools in Europe, the Erasmus School of Business, and I was outright rejected. Um, and so at this point, you know, I'm feeling pretty significant headwind. And I started looking for opportunities to um, tack into the wind, to borrow a sailing analogy, which will be hilarious to anyone who knows what a terrible sailor I am. But I start, you know, tacking is a maneuver where you, you can't go straight into the wind. You start kind of zigzagging in the direction that the wind is coming from. Right. And in my case, uh, that meant looking for another step that wouldn't get me directly to where I wanted to be, but that would get me a little closer. And that next opportunity came for me uh, when I was in an airplane. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, this guy in full Jewish Orthodox regalia comes and sits next to me. And I was going through a bit of a militant atheism phase at the time and, and was <laughs> arguing with anyone who would listen. But <laughs> I decided to be good. And, uh, you know, I, I decided I wasn't going to go there. And we start talking. Um, and by that stage, I had kind of weaseled my way into working on a technology project. At well, wait a second. You, you had been, yeah, you had been. ING was kind of your first step right out of school, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's so right. Like, tell me a little bit about how do you, you even get that job? And, you know, yeah. was any of the work ended up being, did any of the work end up being, was it all communications? Like, you were a, pro, you were a project director, right? But like, what does that, what did that mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Before so we the, move on to the to the serendipitous uh, airplane meeting, no problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So so my first role was to work for the internal communications team. Um, again, this was the height of the global financial crisis. So our main job was basically just to sync ING up as an organization, just to get everyone's expectations set up on on what was happening around us. Right? Like, was was the world ending or not? Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, we, I mean, just to give you a sense, for example, we had this, these crazy cash 22 situations whereby ING would fire 5,000 people, right? right. And, um, but they couldn't tell us internally that they were firing 5,000 people because it could cause the stock to plummet. So the workaround for that was they were going to have a 5 a.m., 6 a.m., uh, call, right, with the analysts, with the market analysts who are watching ING to tell them, listen, you know, we're going to let go of all these people. Um, and then they would call us, they would tell my team, listen, you got to be in at four in the morning. And at four in the morning, we're going to tell you what's happening. So that doesn't give you any time to go leak this out to anyone else, right, so that it doesn't hit the market before we package it exactly the way we want to package it. Right. So at four in the morning, you'll get the information. And you have two hours to basically translate this into eight different languages um, wow. And this email is going to go out to the whole company to let them know that 5,000 people are being let go of. Wow. And uh, I was working in a department of 60 people, and I was one of three native English speakers in that department. Wow. So very often, you know, I was literally correcting the spelling on these emails that were, or, or the grammar on, the spell, on the, these emails that were going out. Um, and because these emails were pretty central, you know, we, we worked directly with, with the C-suite. Um, and so I got to build some, I got to build some, um, relationships with, with some members of the C suite, specifically with the guy called, um, Jan Focke van der Bosch at the time, who was, uh, the chief procurement officer for ING. Mm -hmm. And I had, uh, an idea for a project, which I thought was going to save us a bunch of money. Um, I pitched it to him. 
literally in an elevator. So taking the elevator pitch to, a, to like a, a complete literal <laughs> definition. Yeah. Uh, and he loved it. And he said, cool, you know, like you're hired. Here's a budget. Come move to my department and, and you can work on actually building this product out. Um, Do you mind so, sharing what that was or you can't? Yeah, no, that's fine. So uh, at ING, we had this pro- and, and most large organizations have this problem where um, basically they end up outsourcing work for skills that they have internally within the company. Mm. So this became super clear to me when a colleague of mine came to me and said, listen, um, ING in Greece just released this great recruitment video uh, and it was made in flash, right? The problem is that it has ING Greece written all over it. And I, I want to just take out the word Greece and like use it for our country, right? But to get someone at the time who could code in flash, right, to do this thing, th- th- like th- when she was quoting this to external organizations, that's how cool, 20,000 euros, right? To get yeah. this thing done. Yeah. Just to remove the word Greece yeah. from the video. And, you know, again, we had this whole procurement thing, so we would negotiate. And I think she managed to get it down to 12,000 euros. But right? it's a but, huge waste but, of time. But it's insane, right? Like, yeah. if you had one person inside the organization who, who has these skills, they could do it in five minutes. Right. Um, so I basically just built a platform where you could say, listen, I have a budget to outsource this. This is what I've negotiated to outsource this externally. Mm-hmm. If you can get this done internally for me, right, this will save ING as an organization this much money, right? And it was basically just a central repository for people to say, here's what I'm planning on outsourcing. Can anyone save me this amount of money by doing this internally? And then ING had this way of crediting, you know, internally within the departments. They could say, oh, okay, well, you know, you saved us so much money, so we can... We can, we can bonus credit. you. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that was basically the idea on a very high level. Were there any cash rewards associated with that? Like at the $12,000 project, if somebody took that, did they get like a thousand bucks or something? Uh, no. So no. That, turned, that turned out not to be positive. It was very much like all kudos. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was also around the time that we were start like we had you know badges and we had like little kind of yeah so it was That's it was cool. all social credit kind of fun that yeah sounds very gamification yeah <laughs> kind of community oriented like Wall Street Oasis with yeah. the silver bananas um, okay so you're doing that for a few years do you like it is it fun I mean that that's that project did that take up the most of your time um, yeah I mean so it was it was fun in the sense that it gave me access to to very kind of high-flying people. Yeah. Um, I got to, for example, interview the CEO of uh, ING Brazil. They had like, you know, a very cool expansion project that they were doing. He said, yeah, show up at my hotel, you know, I'll, I'll take you to the C-suite for breakfast over here and like, we'll talk about what we're doing in ING Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was super fun, uh, but nothing to do with finance really, right? I was yeah. just working in a bank uh, on yeah. communications. Um, so it, it became clear to me that, you know, like I would have to leave. Uh, and, and that's why I ended up taking this, this position um, to work on this product for the tech team, because that was a little bit closer to what I wanted to do. It still wasn't finance proper, mm-hmm. but it was procurement. So it was saving money instead of investing money. Yeah. And it had me working with engineers and designers and um, you know, tech people. So that was just cool. kind of, it was somewhere on my heat map that was a little closer to where I wanted to be. Got it. So you're kind of tacking toward, uh, <laughs> yeah. digging towards. So the goal, it sounds like the goal still here is to get to finance. You still held investment banking in super high esteem. Kind of is that is that accurate? Or at this point, where you it was VC on the map at all? Yeah, I, I did hold investment banking in very high esteem. Um, I also held trading in very high esteem because, as I mentioned, we had a trading floor at ING. Yep. Uh, and and the traders were some of the smartest cookies I, I got to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and VC was 
always on my heat map. As, as I mentioned, I was a big fan of this TV show, Dragon's Den. Yeah. Uh, and also one thing I did mention, I'm, I'm Israeli. I was born in Israel mm-hmm. and Israel uh, for this is not very known outside of Israel or outside of the VC scene, but Israel's brand today is the startup nation, right? Mm-hmm. It completely disproportionately punches above its weight in terms of VC funding, in terms of startups created, in terms of unicorns created, in terms of IPOs, uh, yeah. in terms of patents filed. So that was kind of always part of the gray noise of my extended network. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, that was very much on the heat map too. So let's go back to the plane ride. So you're on a plane. Yeah. Where are you flying and what's okay. going on? In- so I had, <laughs> I had just been visiting family in Israel okay. uh, and I was flying back to New Zealand where I, where I grew up and where I went to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was flying to New Zealand via Korea. And this guy comes to sit down next to me who was on a business trip to Korea. He was uh, a project manager for a Danish company that made software for Forex uh, trading. And I was working on a, on a project at, at ING Bank. And so we had a lot in common with what we were doing. Uh, and so, yeah, we got, we got talking and he said, listen, you know, if you're ever in Israel, I'd love to take you out to lunch, give me a call. Um, so I kept the lead very warm, you know, and, and I, I knew he had a few topics that he was very interested in. He was very interested in Chinese politics, for example. So you know, I read up everything I could in Chinese politics. I was always just forwarding him little articles that I was finding on Chinese politics. And about a year later, I find myself back in Israel and I say, hey, listen, you know, let's, let's grab that lunch. So we talk and he says, well, what do you want to do? Before you go further, why did, yeah. you, did you know instinctually how important networking was? Like, how did you know to keep that lead warm and send those stories? Was it just from reading Wall Street Oasis 100 times and people screaming networking over and over again? Or was it just something that comes natural to you where you felt like, hey, I, or this guy just seems really important. I'm going to follow. Yeah. Uh, so a, f- a few things over there. So first of all, my mom is is just a networking master. So I, I had that as an example from like a very young age. Very cool. Okay. Um, so I, I think that was part of it. Another part of it was, you know, as I mentioned, I, I had tried to follow the straight and narrow formula and I was hitting doors wherever I turned, right? So right. it was very clear to me that I wasn't going to get into an investment bank through the front door, right? Like I, I just, I hadn't done anything right to date. I I was going to have to do it in an alternative way. And so networking just kind of seemed like the logical way to do it. You know, that, that, that finding you were going to have to have something that, that wasn't going to be on the, on the checklist. I agree. I think that is. (laughs) Okay. So you were, you were savvy enough, or at least your mom had taught you enough growing up that you um, did that kind of instinctually naturally where you're like, Hey, I'm going to keep in touch with this guy. I'm going to be back in Israel and it could, who knows what it were. Yeah. I mean, Yes, but I, I, I would just take out the word naturally. And, and okay. you know, my mom, if she ever gets to listen to this, will laugh at this. But for the longest time, you know, I, I, would, I would try to corner her and say, like, how do you do what you do, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you get people to like you? Because to me, it just seemed like black magic. Like, I never understood how people could do that. Mm-hmm. And, and because it just seemed like something that took so much effort and had such a low chance of actually paying off. You know, I'm, I'm like a very kind of like, um, like rational, cerebral person. A little, so more, for, cynic, a little more cynical. Yeah, but, but I, I just think, I think very statistically, right? So yeah. like, I know that of the last 20 contacts that I've made, right? Like may, maybe one of them, right, has been useful, right? So right. It then for the, if there's a 5% hit rate, right, it then becomes very difficult to motivate myself to quote unquote network when I know that this only has a 5% chance of being successful. Right. But, but 
you know, like just through elbow grease and, and grit, I, I just eventually kind of like it slowly sunk in that, yes, this is important and it's a numbers game. And if you do enough of it, even though most of them will fail, you know, the 5% that materialized will be a big deal. So yeah, that was, that was kind of, uh, eventually I, I did learn that lesson, but I wouldn't say it came naturally at all. Well, you were, while you were at NING before this, uh, before this plane ride um, that ended up changing your life, we'll get to that. Were you kind of actively networking throughout, through, uh, within ING and, and out, outside ING? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess my, my shift from internal communications to ING banking, uh, to ING uh, uh, IT banking, which is where I led this tech project, that was, you know, a contact that I made with the, with the uh, chief procurement officer. So that was a great example of networking. Mm-hmm. Um, my project also ended up getting picked up within ING, right? So it got picked up by our internal ING TV um, which was my former team, right? So that's kind of like back networking through your previous context within the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, ING also opened something called the Cu- Customer Success Center, which was this uh, area for what they were calling entrepreneurship, right? So entrepreneurs within ING mm-hmm. uh, to, to come and uh, basically float all their ideas and work together and collaborate on all these cool projects. So they heard of my project and they said, hey, listen, you know, if you come here, we'll give you a desk so you can work on this thing and, and, and make it cool. work. Yeah, so so definitely networking the whole way was was very important, but unfortunately none of those things materialized into what I wanted them to be. Right, none of those worked out to be a job in finance proper. But they definitely gave me a lot of experience that I could then later leverage to getting that job. How did you have the the guts to even pitch that in the elevator to set someone so high up? Yeah, so I think part of that is cultural. Um, so again, born in Israel, uh, raised in Israel, and Israelis are just notoriously disrespectful of hierarchy. So there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's actually this, um, bringing in the Netherlands back again, there's this Dutch researcher called um, Hertz, uh, Hert Hofstetter, who he has an organization called Cultural GPS. And what he did is he went and he mapped every country in the world on how they compare on all these parameters. And for example, how individualistic versus collective you are, you know, America right. is a very individualistic, Chinese people mm-hmm. are very collective. Right. Um, but, but on this one measure, how respectful are you of authority? When they finally came to, to uh, put Israel on that scale, they just it broke the scale, right? Like Israel is just completely off of the chart and how disrespectful they were of authority. So I, I would say part of that is cultural. Um, and then part of that was also, you know, just my nature. And, and part of that was that, that I'd had a lot of practice and activities that I'd gotten involved in in school and, and just dealing with, with people like that. Do you have any guesses to why that is culturally? Why are Israelis? Uh, yeah. is it- so I think, I think part of that comes, um, part of that comes from the, from the military, right? So in order to be, and I didn't go to the military as a disclaimer, I, I left Israel when I was 12. Uh, but, but people, you know, like military strategists will often talk about this. For example, they say that in order to be effective as a military, you have to be very decentralized, right? Because in, in a, in a combat kind of situation, things are changing all the time. Yeah. Yeah, Things are changing all the time. No single person can process all that information. You have to decentralize decision-making and autonomy and authority to people in order to actually, you have to empower people to make decisions Mm. in order to actually, uh, be effective. And so I think, I think part of that is, is just trained into Israelis in the military. And then that kind of trickles down into society at large. That's fascinating. Um, so I, I think that's, that, that might be part of it. Uh, okay. Yeah. Very cool. I learned something new. So, okay. So you're, let's get back to the, the so you go back to, is you find yourself back in Israel a year later after this uh, initial 
kind of plane ride and you had been kind of keeping the, the contact form, sending mm. him interesting articles on Chinese politics, which was mm. his. And so tell me how that all went. Yeah. Uh, so he says to me, what, what do you want to do? Right. And I said, well, I'm a startup nation. I want to work with startups. So he says to me, okay, so you got to making an appointment for you. You got to be at this address at this time, um, show up and I'll meet you there. And so I, I rock up at this house and this is in Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, real estate is ridiculously expensive because you can't throw a rock without hitting something sacred. And I, I show up at this house and it's huge. Right. And that, that already tells me this guy's loaded mm-hmm. and uh, you know, like walls and cameras and the whole thing. And um, I get buzzed in and as I'm walking into the property, I get a call from this guy, Danny, who had set up the meeting for me. And he says, listen, I'm so sorry. Something came up last moment. I, I'm, I'm not showing up. Just talk to Alan. He's a nice guy. You'll, you'll get along with him. Great. Uh, and so Alan, this guy, uh, brings me into his house um, and starts walking me down the staircase. And it's, it's, you know, two stories underground or something like that. And, and at this point, I, you know, I start having like, how well do I know this guy who I met on a plane <laughs> two years ago <laughs> that I'm now underground in this guy's house who I've never met before behind a big wall, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, it turns out to be totally fine. And uh, he sits me down in his office and he says, uh, what's your name? Right, simple question. Mm-hmm. Now, I had been going by Steph Jansen for mm-hmm. 14 years by that stage, mm-hmm. but I was born Steph or Stefan Alon Itzikson. Right, which is my, my Israeli name. Yep. And uh, I hadn't used it in so long, you know, but, but I just, I was back in Israel and I said, okay, I, I'm going to use my Israeli name. So I, I introduced myself as Stefan Alam Itzikson. And he says to me, Itzikson, I, I know that name from somewhere. I've never met anyone who knows my last name. Yeah. But he, uh, he says to me, where's your father from? I say, South Africa. He says, me too. He says, where in South Africa? I say, Johannesburg. He says, me too. He says, where in Johannesburg? I had to ask my dad. And he says, that's where I know your dad from. We were the only other Jewish family on that same street in Johannesburg, South Africa. And then he names wow. my aunt because he went to high school with her. That's crazy. And so it was just like the craziest coincidence. And so he was religious and he took it as a sign. And uh, there and then just picked up the phone and uh, called up the, the fund manager who ended up hiring me. He said, John, you, you got you to gotta hire this kid. And, and that was it. And so what fun was this? What was this next role? Yeah, so, uh, so I joined a VC fund in Israel called uh, Our Crowd. Uh, and this was in its, very much in its infancy. Uh, Our Crowd was a, at the time, I think, we were, I think something like $50 million in assets under management, like very small fund. Um, I think the biggest deal we were doing at the time was a $2.5 million check. And that was like considered huge for us. Yeah. Um, but it uh, very quickly just exploded. So today our crowd manages $1.5 billion in assets wow. under management. Um, it is, uh, you know, has invested in something like 200 or so companies. Uh, many of, uh, you know, alongside all the largest VCs in the Bay. So alongside Andreessen Horowitz, we did a deal. We did a deal with NEA, four or five deals with Coastal Ventures. Mm-hmm. Um, we invested in an LA-based company here with um, Marissa Myers, who's the CEO of Yahoo, and before that, one of the early employees at Google. She started the APM program at Google yep. uh, with Eric Schmidt, who is the chairman of Google, um, a deal with Mark Cuban, <laughs> right? So going back to Shark Tank. Yeah. Uh, we were in Hyperloop before Richard Branson came and made it the Virgin Hyperloop. 
uh, 20 exits, including uh, jump bikes, which those red bikes that you see all over the place that we sold to Uber, uh, Beyond Meat. Um, so we became one of the most active VC funds in the country. And uh, yeah, that was, that was our crowd. We were super lucky. Uh, and then- Why do you um, say you were lucky? Well, I, I mean, I guess I was lucky just in the sense that I, I, it's not like I joined an elite VC fund straight off the bat, right? I joined a tiny VC fund that, that, then, just, yeah, that then just exploded. Why do, you, why do you think it exploded? Did you guys have some early exits that were very successful or was it just- uh, No, so we actually had a completely different approach to, uh, to VC investing. So traditional VC funds will raise their money from limited partners that are big, stable institutions. So I think- pension funds, university right. endowments, things yeah. like that, right? Yep. Um, what we were doing is we were actually doing something called equity crowdfunding, which is kind of a category that we invented um, alongside AngelList. Mm -hmm. And so what we were doing was we were vetting deals uh, with a team of investment professionals who are all you know, former Goldman, Lehman, Blackstone, those guys. Right. Uh, and then we were finding uh, deals that we very liked. We're putting up about only about 5% of the value of each deal from um, our own money. And our, by our own money, I mean from our crowd's initial founding LPs. Right. Uh, and then we were crowdfunding the remaining 95% of the deal uh, through the internet, through, through a, a network of accredited investors, which today is about 20,000 people large. But how um, did you get that initial kind of uh, high net worth individuals, how was that initially sourced? Was it just through the friends of uh, this guy you ended up in his bit? Like, was it his close friends initially who happened to have enough money to throw? Yeah, up? well, so yeah, so the reason Alan was able to get me the interview with, with John uh, was because Alan happened to be at the time our crowd's largest uh, investor. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it was, yeah, very much started as a, a group of friends and family. Uh, John, our, our crowd's CEO, is kind of a founding father of the VC scene in Israel, sort of an Israeli Tom Perkins, if you will. Okay. Um, and he, uh, he, he basically just knew everyone. So, so a lot of people were, were signing up to be part of his network. Um, that was just his life's work to build, to build that group of people. Um, and so we were able to grow very quickly from, from a VC fund with, like I said, you know, I think less than 50 million or so in assets under management, maybe a hundred million. I can't remember the exact number, but today again, well over a billion dollars. And is it, still, is it still crowdsourced at each deal? Is it still done no. in the same model? No. So uh, today, some portion of the deals are crowdsourced. Mm -hmm. um, our crowd since then has also started raising traditional venture funds. So yep. for example, they raised, they raised an AI fund. They raised a fund focused on seed investments, a digital health fund, an agri-tech fund, um, a, a robo-fund investing in follow-on investments only. Uh, so they have a traditional fund business, mm -hmm. and they also have a fund of funds business. So our crowd was one of the seed investors in Maneve, which is one of the big mobility funds, uh, and, and several other uh, kind of like micro-venture funds that, that are now very active in, in Israel and all over the world. So you had moved from uh, Amsterdam and the Netherlands uh, to, to Tel Aviv, to Israel. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about kind of that initial first jump, like, okay, for, from that conversation of you got to hire this guy, did you have to go through any sort of interviews or was it just like a done deal? And how long did it take you to kind of leave yeah. ING and that was the whole process of moving there and, and kind of yeah. get Yep. So I, I did have to go through, so I went through an interview first with the CEO and then with uh, my eventual manager, but, but even that, you know, was interesting. So when they hired me, John said to me, listen, you know, I've got three vacancies open right now. I can give you a choice of working on marketing, on biz dev, or on investments, right? 
And of course, for the first time, my little heat map word cloud went ding, 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 <laughs> right? <laughs> I heard the word investments. And so, you know, there, there's this beautiful quote that the, the Cheshire cat um, says to Alice in Wonderland. He says to her, uh, you know, she's lost. So she says, you know, where do, you, where do I want to, I don't know where to go, right? And the Cheshire cat says, well, where, where do you want to go? And Alice says, I don't care much. And the cat says, well, then it doesn't matter which way you go. And it's, you know, it's a kind of a children's story, but I think there's a real lesson there. It's, it's really important to have plans. And the plan usually doesn't survive contact with reality, mm -hmm. but in the absence of kind of like a master plan, mm -hmm. any opportunity can seem as good as the next. And for a career in finance, that's just not good enough. There are certain moves that you have to make or it gets very difficult. Yeah. And if you know what you want and if you know what those moves are, even if you can't have it now, the next best move that's available to you becomes very clear. So, you know, that's kind of the number one piece of feedback I give to people now is, listen, if you want a career in finance, you've got to have a plan and you've got to know what those moves are that you're planning on making because doing it the way I did it is, is just a luck of the draw. But patience is also so undervalued, I feel like, too. There's yeah. like, like you said, if you have that master plan in place and you have an idea of, well, this, this actual place, if you have the knowledge to know that this position actually is slightly closer to the eventual goal, you'll know when that opportunity presents itself. So like you heard investment, you're like, I can be an investment professional and I can yeah. get that on my resume. It was like, yeah. ding, ding, ding. Yeah. it was an easy choice for you. It sounds like, you know, you weren't, didn't want to do marketing or biz dev. Mm -hmm. You wanted to be on the yeah. side. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Were you intimidated by like, oh, what, what do I have to know? I don't know all this finance stuff or did it matter? Did it not matter with VC? Uh, well, you know, again, so I'd, I'd taken finance classes at school. So I, I wasn't coming into this completely yeah. unprepared. And, and I'd worked around bankers and taken, you know, every opportunity to, to ask people about their job. So I, I, I picked and, you know, read a lot of Wall Street Oasis, read a lot of books and a lot of podcasts. I'd picked up a lot of the jargon that, that I needed, right, right. To, to do the job. Um, and at some point also, you just got to be willing to make the jump, right? I mean, yeah, like I wasn't totally prepared, but also I was like, hey, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been waiting for exactly this to happen half my yeah. life. So it's, it's time to just take the leap and make it happen. So you, you uh, took the leap and you moved, how long, within a month you were moved or five, three months? What was it? Uh, I, I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember. So, but you got but, the job. You said, I want to be an investment professional. He said, okay. Yeah, I got the job. I moved to Israel. Our crowd started completely exploding. Um, you know, like I said, in the early days, a two and a half or $2 million deal would have been a syndicate of about 200 or so investors, which we would manually put together. Yeah. Um, by the time I left, or not even by the time I left, a few years later, we were making $25 million investments mm -hmm. in you know, companies like Amprest, which is the software that runs Israel's ballistic missile defense system, right? So like pretty, pretty mission critical yeah. uh, software companies. Uh, and, you know, we were being followed into those rounds by, by huge investors, right? Like, like massive corporate venture capital funds and things like that. Wow. Uh, and our crowd at some point, you know, to, to syndicate a $25 million deal, you no longer can do that manually, right? That's not just 200 investors that, that could, that, yeah. So at that point, we had to really build some backend software to automate some of the processes that, that we were, had going inside OutCrowd. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, being a former software project-ish, project manager-esque, right? I, I kind of got involved in that and I started asking around, you know, what, what are we, how are we thinking of doing this? And what came out of that is, you know, we should, take our own advice that we give to entrepreneurs all the time. And we should say, listen, if we should go hire 30 engineers and brand ourselves as a FinTech company, as well as a VC fund and start building some proprietary in-house 
software, right? And we set out with the mission of building basically a Bloomberg for private equity. So today, if you want to invest in a stock, you know, you, you can go to Bloomberg and you can, all the research reports are nice and organized and, and everything's in one place. Mm-hmm. If you want to invest in a startup today, you don't really have a tool that says, here's a professional research report written by industry experts about this particular software and about the market and about the competitors and about, you know, how you should be thinking about this investment. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the terms that you need to understand. Here's exactly what they mean. That, that resource didn't exist. Yeah. So we went out to build it and we um, raised uh, huge amounts of money. I think more than a hundred million dollars uh, at our crowd, uh, valued our crowd at 360 million mm-hmm. uh, pre-money. Um, and, you know, as one of the first employees in our crowd, I joined in its first year or so, you know, I, I had equity mm-hmm. uh, and it was, it was just amazing to see, you know, well, what does it look like to build a company worth half a billion dollars? What, how right. does it look like to be part of a team that's growing so quickly and, and just capturing market share? Um, so that was crazy. Yeah, that's amazing. So did you feel like you were going to be there forever? What, what kind of prompted you, like, you know, you were there for almost four and a half or over four and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about how it evolved, how your job, you said you, you know, did a little bit of the, almost like a product management role. You're doing the investment role as well. Um, how did it evolve over time as the fund started getting bigger and bigger and you started working more on that kind of that? Platform? Yeah. So I, w- I was primarily uh, involved as an investment analyst over there mm-hmm. um, and eventually got promoted to an associate, then to a principal can you tell um, me what that, there. was there like a team of like 10 of you that were kind of looking at every deal coming through the door? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there was, there was a team of us, um, pretty cookie cutter finance guys. You know, my, one of my managers headed the equity research division for Lehman and then for Goldman and then Lehman in Israel. Yep. Uh, the other one was a, a Wharton grad who'd just come out of Blackstone. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they, 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 uh, very, very kind of like standardized finance people yeah. were looking at deals in, in a very standardized finance way. Um, and we were, yeah, evaluating startups that were coming through the door, deciding these are the ones that we like mm-hmm. uh, and deciding these are the ones that we want to put through to the crowd uh, to, to fundraise from. Cool. And so tell me about how things evolved. So you were getting promoted. So you were man, you weren't doing all the initial filtering. You were doing more of the evaluation on the back end, I assume, in terms of like having a say, yeah. Yay or yeah, or in investment committee stuff. Yeah. So, so the way that a lot of VC funds work now is that on the junior side, right, you're doing a lot of filtering and sourcing. Right. Uh, and then if you find a deal that you really like, you have to then find, uh, you know, a partner within, the, within your investment committee that will sponsor it, right, that will, that will actually be willing to, to push this through your investment committee. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were looking at a lot of deals that, you know, we thought were great deals. Um, and yeah. And then when, whenever I found one that I liked, I would escalate it up the chain and try to find a, a partner within our team who would, who would run with it. Got um, it. Was there any frustration in terms of like the speed or that, that process, or was it a small enough team still at the, the back end of the, of your tenure there where it was still like pretty efficient? Yeah, no, we were, we were pretty efficient. I would say yeah. everyone on the team knew how to move very fast. I think in the startup world also, uh, you you end up with some some situations whereby investors just kind of get FOMO, and they you know if they hear that other investors are are jumping on a deal, yeah, everyone jumps, uh, everyone jumps in the deal. <laughs> um, so moving fast is definitely part of the DNA of venture capital funds. I would say, if anything, the more important skill is learning how to be disciplined and learning how not to. <laughs> 
uh, follow that instinct to just get FOMO and, and jump on the bandwagon with everyone else because that's when you get uh, WeWorks, which was, a, which was an Israeli entrepreneur who, who managed to get everyone in the country and then eventually half of the investors in the world to get terrible FOMO and, and jump on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, I guess, one of the, one of the things you learn as a VC. It's interesting. Yeah. That, that whole story is insane. Um, tell me a little bit about just as you're kind of getting into your last year, how you start look, thinking about kind of your next step. And yeah. Because so, I think what, you know, from the outside looking in, you're in this super fast growing, you know, VC fund. It seems like you're doing a ton of deals now you're getting to do you're on the investment side, you're an investment professional, you know, potentially with a track to partner there. So I'd love to hear just like what that thought process was in terms of, um, Hey, you know, I think I want to move. Was it, was it because you wanted to go to, a, you wanted to come to the U S was it because you, you know, just want a new challenge? Tell me, tell me. What yeah. You're... Yeah. So, so my next opportunity, uh, found me. So first, um, I, I met my wife at work. Uh, so she, she and I were working at the fund together. Um, and then, uh, so she got a few years ago, a diagnosis for a bone condition that was not treatable in Israel, but is treatable in the U S mm. and, uh, you know, because everyone at work knew both of us, you know, with their full blessing, they said, listen, move to the U S get her on treatment. Uh, that's what you need to do. We'll even like help you work remotely a little bit, uh, to kind of help you transition into your next role. Uh, and they were super, super understanding. And, uh, we, we basically had to come here in order to get her on treatment. Um, but I would, so that was, <laughs> that was, I guess my next opportunity was to, to be a supportive husband and, and to, yeah. to make, make that move. Um, I, uh, so despite this fake accent, I'm, I'm you know, not American as I mentioned. And, and <laughs> I, I, when I came here, uh, I, I actually have five nationalities, none of which are American. Yeah. I had to, uh, wait for about a year while I got my green card over here. So I went on a force, a sort of trial retirement for a year or so. Mm. Um, did a lot of meditation, did a lot of working out, did a lot of reading. And, tell me a little uh, bit about that. So w tell me your, what, what kind of uh, passports do you have? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so born to a French mother and a South African father. Uh -huh. uh, so those two. Uh, born in Israel. So Israeli. Mm -hmm. uh, moved to New Zealand. So Kiwi. Awesome. And uh, I, my grandparents on mom's side are Romanian. So I, while I've actually never taken that passport out, I'm actually eligible for, for a Romanian passport as well if, if I want it. Um, no, and, then, no. and then, you know, in a year or so, I could get an American one too. So if, if I'm really determined, I could hold six. <laughs> wow. And so um, when you were thinking about coming here, you knew this just had to happen. Yeah. To get your wife treatment. So what, was, what were the steps that she was at the fund? You guys were both at the fund. Yeah. So what were the steps you took in mm -hmm. order to get her i assume time was of the essence to get her here so yeah how you guys did that as you know not not being mm. sincere yeah so so thankfully time was not it wasn't super urgent but yeah. it, it was kind of a medium-term problem so this this condition it's it's a degenerative condition that um happens very very slowly yeah, yeah. and most people uh only detected very late in life mm. uh, the diagnosis for it is actually just awful so a lot of people end up not realizing that they have it and then they end up um, mistaking it for leukemia and going on chemo for years only to discover that they never needed it. Uh, so yeah, so it's a super rare disease. Very few people in the world have it, which is why this happens. Um, mm. But in her case, she just took a 23andMe test 
which told her, listen, you might have this thing. You should go get this confirmed. And we did, and she did. Um, and so we were extremely lucky that we caught it so early, which gave us some time and, you know, flexibility to handle this thing. Yep. Um, we were able to get her on about, a, I think, a quarter of the dose that she needed in Israel, okay. um, which, you know, was why we would eventually have to leave because yeah. Israel wasn't willing to put her on the dose that she would be able to get in the U.S., which was the recommended dose for her. Right. Um, but uh, so that bought us a little bit of time. So we had she was on some treatment in Israel. Right. Um, and we then started the process of saying, OK, well, we're going to move to the U.S. Um, I'm not American, so I'm not going to be able to move with my job. I'm not allowed to work over here. Right. Uh, and so, um, yeah, we reached out to family. She, she's American. So we reached out to family over here and uh, they said, you know, of course, we'll host you and we'll, we'll bridge you uh, to this next chapter in your life. And, and that's what we did. And so you moved straight to L.A.? No, so we moved to San Diego first. My wife is San Diegan, okay, uh, which is a great place to be for a year when you're yes, when you're is. bumming around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. No, like I said, had 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 a great relaxing year in San Diego um, before finally finding the, the job here in LA. How did you kind of approach things as you once you got there? So you said you you relaxed. It was almost like a, a little mini retirement in the middle of your career. But how did you? go about your job search what was the what was the pitch and like how did i mean I yeah can, but i'd love to hear it from you yeah so look um recruiting for a vc is is absolutely brutal right there's no uh path right uh there's no real structure every fund works a little bit different they use the same terminology with like slight variations that will like throw you off mm -hmm. um it's kind of the wild west so uh you know, I, I think I went to John Gannon has got a website where he centralizes a lot of VC careers. Mm -hmm. I went and I think I applied for 20 jobs over there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I got a call back for one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just, uh, it was, I didn't get past the first phone interview on that job. So interviewing for VC is really just brutal. Um, why do you think that is like, what, what about it? I, so I think there's a few things. First of all, there's a very high caliber of candidates, right? So when I, for example, joined um, ING, uh, sorry, when I joined uh, our crowd, mm -hmm. the team over there were uh, a math PhD from Brown University. Um, as I mentioned, this, this guy from Wharton and, mm -hmm. and Blackstone and, and this guy from Goldman and uh, Lehman, right? So like, the the bona fides and the, and the the pedigree of people who who you meet over there is just incredible. Yeah. Um, so so very high talent competing for for very few jobs. Um, so I think that's one part of it. I think another part of it again is there's there's no structure. So if you're going like for example, a lot of the other jobs that people talk about in Wall Street Oasis, like consulting, like investment banking, like private equity recruiting, like hedge funds, um, you know there's a cycle <laughs> like you know when recruiting is going to happen there's a website where you can send your application right uh and there's things that you can do to you know increase your chances but at least that basic infrastructure of when is the beginning date when is the end date when will i hear by who do i contact you know what what are the prereqs that's all in place right yeah, i'd say less so with hedge funds but yeah in private equity especially with the middle market <clears throat> mega funds you're absolutely right there's a definitely a cycle and a process and absolutely with banks it's like a very structured process where they're coming at undergrad or MBA. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you, you can do things. Whereas VC, it's like, 
completely wild west like you said yeah yeah um so i i would say that is part of the problem mm-hmm. um and and then i would say you know this is such a heavy heavily this is an industry that's so heavily influenced by relationships right where since they can have they have their you know i'm recruiting for an associate right now right mm-hmm. and uh again these extremely high pedigreed people are coming through and um how how do you differentiate between 20 people with perfect resumes right i mean it's it's at the end of the day it's do you know something that's not on the resume right like do you know the person do you know that you're going to get along with them um do you know that they have uh a network of you know do you know that they have a bunch of vcs in common uh with you who can vouch for them who who they can contact for deal flow once you hire them do you know that they have a mafia of startups that they can recruit from right mm-hmm. um so those are all things that 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 are uh are are very hard to prove on paper right yeah uh, and so you if you're if you know someone right and they're they're a known risk right or they're a known quality that helps a lot when it comes to recruiting them it's funny because for some of the vc analysts and vc associate positions we've helped fill through our recruiting arm through wso some of the people who apply are incredible on paper but it's all finance it's kind yeah. of Wall Street to some, and, and it's funny because we'll have the people with like the wharton and the blackstones and i'm like all they had to put on their resume was something about vc or startups and it would have been passed through yeah as they just left that out and didn't you know slightly modify the resume it gets yeah. trash because it's like you have to show a passion for startups for entrepreneurs for for ex- at least have some sort of excel you know some sort of internship at an accelerator fund something like that yeah, that definitely helps. And and yeah. VCs also, I mean, you know, uh, so first of all, yes, absolutely. So at Alcrad, we had one summer intern cohort. We had interns from HBS, Cornell, Columbia, Yale. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, the ones that we took through all had previous kind of entrepreneurial experience that, that they had uh, touched at school. But also VCs generally, I think, value diversity much more so than any other area of high finance Mm -hmm. so for example at my current fund we are uh the two partners are operators right one of them started a five billion dollar company the other one's a serial medical entrepreneur Mm -hmm. um then we have a life science investments team so they're kind of a team within the team they're they're both one of them is a a neuropharmacology phd the other one is a biochemistry phd Mm -hmm. um and then she came out of uh uh she was a former BCG consultant, and then she went to something called Venture University, which was sort of like a mini MBA for people who want to transition into venture. Yeah. Um, so that was yeah, that was kind of her path in. Yeah. Uh, and then we had uh, an intern who we we're about to promote, who was the world's most qualified intern. So both his parents uh, were were judges, uh, and so that you know he went and got his JD only to decide he actually doesn't want to be a lawyer. So he then went and got his MBA, and uh, to top it all off, he's also a professional golfer or could have been a professional golfer if you wanted yeah. to go that route. Wow. And yeah, and and so we um, you know, we we just gave him an offer now and he's gonna be joining us full time. So you, you definitely have the high caliber problem. And then yeah, I agree with you. On, on on top of having the high caliber, you also need to to show some kind of not just um a focused experience, but a breadth of experience that that makes you something else. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I mean I always say like if you're gonna if you're applying to a BC job, you need to show some some sort of 
very specific VC interest. Um, even if your the rest of your resume looks beautiful on paper, um, just because there is there are people who have done the startup scene, there are people who do have that network that are part of all the right associations and have put in the time or the money to to be part of those networks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I you guess know, yes, yeah. Go ahead. So this job that you found, how did it? What was the break? I guess. So you said you got that that one out of twenty interviews. It didn't. You didn't get past the phone interview. So what was the break eventually? Yeah. So eventually. Um, so again, just <laughs> reaching re- reaching back up to to what we were just talking about. So yeah. you you need to compete on something other than pedigree, right? So mm-hmm. for example, for for my first job, right, when I got the job at OutCrowd, um, you know, there were there were these very pedigreed people walking around, but I had a few advantages. Most of them were Americans being hired out of American schools. I was one of the only people on the team who could speak Hebrew, right? So I was like, so I, I was able to go and work in an Israeli VC and have an advantage that people being hired out of American business schools didn't have, right? Right. Um, I was one of the only people on the team who had a degree in life sciences, right? So I could, uh, I ended up leveraging that to sit on our investment committee for our agri-tech fund, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of the only people who had worked on a technical project in my previous role. So I was often the, the diligence guy that people would send to do diligence on uh, that particular family of enterprise software. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to basically just repeat that same trick again. And so when I came to LA, uh, I was just thinking, okay, well, what, what can I offer here that, that very few people uh, have? And so again, having that experience of uh, Israeli investments, I actually started looking out to see whether there were any investors in California who we had co-invested with, who I could reach out to and say, hey, listen, you know, we were co-invested on this deal together. Let me uh, send you a piece of, you know, let's talk about that deal. So now, now we have that in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up reaching out to uh, the fund over here where the two partners are actually Israeli. So, you know, again, we have that Hebrew piece in common. We had co-invested in a deal together in the past. So they, they kind of knew that we had done some research together with them on that. They knew that they knew of us as an entity. Right. Um, and this time, I mean, the second time around was obviously much easier because this time I was also coming with five years of experience and a previous title as a principal at a VC fund, which definitely helps. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was, uh, yeah, that was how I broke in the second time, I guess. Um, but look, breaking in the first time is difficult and breaking in the second time is not trivial either. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not easy. I, I know a friend, I have a friend who is working for one of the largest CVCs in Israel, okay? Uh, corporate venture capital funds. Yeah. Uh, they had about $150 million a year guaranteed off a Fortune 20 company, off the balance sheet, right? Just don't have to worry about LPs, don't have to worry about fundraising. They just have the money guaranteed yeah. uh, every year off the balance sheet. And that was considered one of the most stable jobs in VC in the country. But then uh, this company went through a lot of turmoil. And mm-hmm. what happens when, you know, the, when a company is going through a tough time, the first thing you cut is that exotic alternative asset investment arm, right? Mm-hmm. So his whole group got cut. And despite really kind of being on top of the venture world, as far as I know, he hasn't gotten another job since. So this is... How long ago was that? Uh, probably about six months ago. Yeah. So yeah. it's, now it's not going to get any easier with COVID out there. No, 
no yeah so yeah it's it's a it's a tough industry to be in and and not most people are not able to be career vcs uh forever you feel like you're going to be a career vc you you know i'll i'll definitely try and i'll also say that there's definitely um you definitely have a better chance of being a career vc once you've reached kind of the VP or principal level, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's much easier to make a, a case for you being around because at this stage, you're starting to sit on boards of companies. Right. Um, you're starting to either have the power to write small checks yourself or people are very much asking for your opinion, you know, in terms of whether checks should be written or not because you've really like led uh, the, the diligence or the thought leadership on that particular industry that you're looking at. Yeah. Um, and so at this point you you start to be very different in what you bring to the table from an analyst or an associate who's worked in a VC for two, three years um, in terms of just the, 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 the quality of, of the, of work and experience that you've done. So the fund that you're at is, is, you know, not a small fund, but not a large fund. I'd call it like, you know, on the lower middle market side of like, yeah. So I would say we're, we're small compared to San Francisco or right. bar- barrier funds mm-hmm. in LA. We're actually, I think, one of the top five largest funds. So L- yeah. LA is a very nascent venture ecosystem. For sure. Um, and you know, so I think there's over here. There's uh, Upfront. There's uh, Greylock, and there's Fifth Wall, who are bigger than us. Yeah. And then I kind of start running out of names. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I th- we're we're one of the larger ones in LA. And that's actually something that uh, I also very much like about this fund is, you know, this is an opportunity to grow with a nascent ecosystem and just kind of grow with the market. Tell me about specifically, so when you're at a fund like that and it's, I mean, how how old is this this fund one that you guys are investing out of? Yeah, we're in fund one. Yeah, we closed end of 2017. We've deployed about a third of the fund to date. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have about two thirds in dry powder. How do you Um, think about kind of throughout the rest of this year investing in this sort of um, climate um, does yeah. the, the bar get much higher for companies that are burning a lot of cash or, or is it kind of status quo thinking that things are going to go back to normal by year end? Yeah, definitely not status quo. I mean, I think for about two years now, valuations have been just overpriced and crazy. So yeah. I, I think what's going to happen now is that uh, it, this is very much a double-edged sword. So the, the portfolio companies that we've already invested in are going to suffer, right? Because all their clients are going to suffer. Of course. Uh, so I think your existing investments need to be probably marked down mentally. Um, and you have to start doing some, you know, start earning your salary and start doing some very smart portfolio management in terms of how you help them hit, uh, you know, hit this, this crisis. So for example, just to, to put an example on that this morning, we were looking at um, the CARES Act. So that's the new uh, stimulus that, that the government just signed right. uh, a week ago to, to give small business loans uh, to, to uh, help supplement salaries for, for small companies, right? So we were, this morning we we're exploring whether uh, that's something that we can do for our portfolio companies, just as an example of, of how you can help add value in this time. Yep. Um, but on the other hand, what's going to happen now is that valuations are going to completely plummet for all new investments, mm-hmm. right? So any investment, we're lucky. We have two thirds of the fund undeployed. Yeah. yeah. So, so most of our money now is going to run a lot further than it was before, because we're going to be getting startups at half the price that we were getting them two months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the start- half, when you say half the price getting before, isn't most of the, I, 
are most of the investments in this in this stage more like venture debt or are you are you doing more series a's no we're, we're doing more like series a's and series b's oh, so the price does really matter <laughs> yeah the price very much matters yeah <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay fair yeah. okay um i thought i thought you might be doing some venture debt deals with us uh we have done venture debt in the yeah. past so we're not opposed to it okay. but but that's most of our deals we're doing straight up okay so yeah, this really matters to you the, the amount of dry powder you have and yeah yeah absolutely Okay. And, and so, uh, yeah, you know, we're going to, we're going to be seeing a lot of down rounds. Um, we're going to be seeing a lot of recaps, uh, and we're going to be able to really just go in there and dictate the terms. Uh, so I, I would say actually, pro- usually some of the, if you look at historically, like some of the best VC vintages, mm-hmm. uh, follow a recession or follow a, or an economic crisis. Oh, eight, so, oh, nine. Yeah. So oh, eight, oh, nine vintages are incredible, right? And <laughs> I, like, I, there's like a list, all of VCs now are like circulating these memes, of like the, the the companies that were founded in 08, 09. I think yeah. Airbnb is in there. I think Dropbox is in there. So like um, yeah. some some of the best tech startups in the world are are created in, in times like this. Uh, and yeah, they also happen to make some of the best investments. So I, I would like, say we happen to be lucky. Do you feel like valuations may still be slower to come down just because there is so much dry powder? Do you feel like there's there's too much? Or do you feel like the ecosystem is small enough in like an LA where it's insulated a little bit in this the competition? Like, so what, what what's going to, yeah, I understand the yeah. question. So w- what's going to happen now is that there's going to be a shakeup because mm-hmm. in theory, there are the VCs that have dry powder in, in, on paper and there are VCs that have real dry powder. And what often happens in financial crises is VCs start getting calls from their LPs to say, listen, buddy, don't make a capital call because don't put me in a position where I have to say no to you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of VCs now who are in theory in business and in practice, they're not going to make any investments for the next three, four years. Um, we happen to be very lucky in that our largest LPs and, and you know, just in general, our LPs are either individual billionaires or, yeah. uh, you know, like multi-billion dollar corporations who, who they're not going anywhere. Um, so we're, we're very much recession proof in, in that sense. And they also probably want you to be aggressive right now. Yeah, yeah, and and so uh, that's that's what's going to happen now is that a lot of uh, a lot of even though yes, there's in theory there's dry powder out there, it's it's just not going to be deployed, um, and so it's only going to be the VCs who can really actually afford to to uh, move their money who are going to be in the game. Do you feel like there's any sort of pressure from PE and all the dry powder there coming down market like growth equity funds like starting to come down into the VC space or do you see yeah. that? They, they come in when it's cool. You know what I mean? So like hedge funds and growth funds, they, they come in when they kind of feel like they're, they're missing out or when they feel like the IPO pipeline has dried up and they don't have uh, anywhere to deploy their yeah. next funds. But, but they have exactly the same problem, right? Unless their LPs are very high quality and, and are able to withstand a downturn, yeah. their LPs are also going to be calling them and saying, listen, don't make a capital call, at least for, for PE funds, right? For hedge funds, they have an even bigger problem. Their LPs are going to be calling them and say, sell, right? I want my money back. So mm. um, that's, uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how this is going to shake up. Great. So for the... Do you have any specific opinions in terms of the the timing and the impact? I know the financial markets have kind of been super haywire. It's now March 31st. So we've gone through a kind of a whipsaw the last few weeks where we were down, I think, almost 30 plus percent in the overall mm-hmm. market and then kind of back up another 15 or 20, whatever it is. I don't even know. We're down 15 percent, 20 percent, something like that right mm-hmm. now. Do you have any, uh, any projections um, in terms of how you see this playing out? In the public markets? In the public markets. 
No, uh, that's very much out of my area of expertise. You don't care. And yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that I don't care. It's that I, I, I respect the boundaries of my knowledge and I, I don't Fair. believe this is something that I'm an expert on. And maybe even a little bit more cynically, I'm not even sure that people who are paid to understand the public markets truly understand the public markets because mm -hmm. when researchers really kind of prod those, you know, again, there's those famous experiments of monkeys beating the experts, right? By throwing yes. darts at the board. So I, I, I'm, I'm not even sure that the experts really know what they're talking about when they make, when they make these projections. That's fair. So for, at your current role, I guess the goal is now deploy the rest of the capital, get in some, you know, get that money, have that money work for you guys as, as far as possible, and then have some great successful exits in two to, two to five years. That's the goal. And so in terms of you know, looking back on your career so far and all this, the interesting steps and journey, you know, your entire journey, is there something you'd kind of give your younger self, any advice you give your younger self or to like, oh, so much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> any so, one piece, any one piece or a couple pieces that you yeah. kind of give the younger listeners mm -hmm. before we call yeah. them off the pod? Well, okay. So, I mean, first of all, there's, for, for other people, there's very little that's repeatable about what I did, right? So, yeah. I, in a way, I got lucky, right? I sat next to the right guy on a plane, and there were many people who, given the same luck, would have probably made a much better analyst than me. Mm -hmm. But it's also true that many other people would not have been able to capitalize on that luck, right? So, I'd spent the last two years playing from behind so that I could say that I worked at a bank, so that I had some inkling of how banking software development works, so that you know I knew to pick the investment role as opposed to say the marketing one when it was offered to me. Yeah. So yeah, I was lucky, but also when luck presented itself, I could identify it and I was also ready to jump on it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess in a sense, you can't repeat the luck, but you can repeat the preparedness. Um, and then in another sense, and this is just more specific to me, some of the very things that made me unfocused, right? also played to my advantage. So it would have been so much easier to arrive here on the straight and narrow. Many of the key experiences in my life made getting this job very difficult. The first step of the straight and narrow, for example, is that you ace high school. But when you immigrate at 12, that can make that pretty difficult because your attention is split between doing well in school and learning some very basic social norms, right? As well as like just nuances like slang and pop culture and things like that. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, those things actually played to my advantage in the long run, right? So knowing that you can survive hard times and adapt is exactly the kind of thing you need when the job search is grinding your confidence down, right? Mm -hmm. um, being Israeli and speaking Hebrew made it much easier for me to chase an opportunity in Israel in the startup nation. Mm -hmm. And suddenly those first 12 years of my life skills you know, became useful again. Right. And, and, and having Hebrew and having the Israeli connection also made it possible for me to find my second job. Mm -hmm. um, having different experiences to the, the cookie cutter, uh, straight and narrow people helps you think differently. And um, some people value that. Some people very much don't. Some people very much want to see you fit into a mold. Uh, but, but for those who do, that gives you an advantage. Um, I think especially also say, for a VC, less so for private equity, although in banks, although they're coming around, they're, they're starting to look outside their small little window. Of yeah. Schools, but. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, banks are just having their lunches eaten left and right by by fintech software, which you know I'm funding to this just destroying <laughs> destroying their livelihood. But <laughs> I would I would yeah I would say that's definitely uh, definitely true. Um, and also um, yeah, I would, you know, all the travel that I did helped me. Um, so it it got all the travel bug out of my system, right? So many people I've worked with, for example, have fantasized about quitting their job to travel the world. 
I don't have those fantasies because I've been to over 50 countries and I've lived in five countries. So, you know, I still like traveling and I don't feel, but I don't feel like I spent my twenties locked up in a golden basement. Mm. Um, and so I don't feel like I, <laughs> there's like a big out world out there that I have to go see. Right. Uh, I, again, I knew a guy who I was applying for uh, a job at uh, again, one, one of these big um, venture funds in Israel uh, the, the partner reached out to me and said, Hey, listen, you know, I'm, I'm hiring someone. Are, are you interested in applying for a VP position? And I applied. Um, I went up against 20 other people. Uh, he ended up sending me the nicest rejection email I've ever received in my life to say, <laughs> like, listen, you know, you came in, you came in number two. <laughs> we didn't hire you for these very specific reasons. Yeah. Um, but the guy who ended up getting the job, so get this top of his class at Stanford engineering, yeah. um, ended up working at, uh, Morgan, where he uh, was a part of, I think, like the five-person team that floated Facebook and oh, then wow. went to work at NEA, which is the largest venture fund in the world, yeah. unless you count SoftBank. Yeah. Um, and so he, uh, you know, I, I'm okay losing out to that guy. Like, <laughs> he, did, he did well. Um, but, but he spent half a year at this fund, a year maybe at this fund, and then he ended up quitting to join a... Uh, uh, religious yeshiva, right? Which is where you go and like study to, yeah, to yeah. like religion all like 10 hours a day. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember talking to him right after he got the job. Um, he didn't know I had applied for his job. But we went out for beers and, and he, he said to me, you know, I haven't, I, I had a half a year off in high school. I, I went and I took a semester abroad in Italy, mm -hmm. but he says, apart from that, I haven't had a break since I can't, like, I don't remember the last time I've had a break. I've, I've basically just been like single. God. Yeah, I've been on the straight and narrow. I've been single-mindedly focused on, on, on getting grades so I could get to the right university, so I could get the right job my whole life. And, you know, I'm not saying that, like, quitting your job and venture to go pursue religion. I don't know, maybe you had some epiphany that I'm missing out on. But the point is that, like, I, I see a lot of people who get ground out of high pressure jobs because they feel like they haven't done anything else. And right. that hasn't been an issue for me because in a sense, you know, the, the very thing that didn't have me focused on the straight and narrow got those things out of my system for me. I mean, and ditto by the way, with, with my green card enforced gap year. Right. So I, I don't know if you've ever had these fantasies of saying, you know, oh, I should quit my job and I'll work out every morning and then I'll meditate and then I'll write a book. And then, you know, like you, like you have a journal. I'll what do would I things. do without a job? Yeah. What would I do? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but, but I didn't, I wasn't allowed to work for a year. Right. So I, I literally had a full year to do that. And, and I did that, you know, again, I went to this 10 day meditation retreat where I did nothing but breathing for 18 hours a day. And uh, you know, I, I got a taste of what it would be like to go to the gym every day and, 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 it's nice. I'm not complaining, yeah. but it comes with its own set of problems, right? So I don't, I don't idolize that form of spending my time in the same way that I see a lot of people talking about that who right. just haven't had the chance to, to, to do that. Um, yeah. I think it's actually been really not like almost lucky you were forced. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> in a sense, it's given you a really nice perspective of like, there's no FOMO of, of, the time off because you had the time off. There's no form of like, Oh, traveling the world. Cause you've had that. So Absolutely. just it's, it's really giving you a nice grounded perspective and be like, no, actually I really enjoy looking at, looking at new businesses. <laughs> it's something you enjoy doing. And so you, you can appreciate that. hundred percent. And the intellectual curiosity around that. Yeah. 
Yeah. What other lessons could I give myself? Look, opportunities present themselves in the strangest places, right? Have your antennas up, but um, to keep beating the metaphor, your antennas have to be tuned to the right frequencies, which right. is kind of a cryptic way of saying, you have to know what you're looking for. And that means knowing what you want. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you're going against the wind, you're going to have to tack occasionally. You're going to have to creatively pivot your career and, and find ways to get one step closer to where you want to be. Um, I'd also say that there's like a few occupational hazards of being a VC that like people don't tell you about, right? Yeah. So in general, the entrepreneurial ecosystem is this weird place where occasionally people get on a career rocket ship and just like their career just takes off, right? So for example, I had an intern who used to intern for me for Cornell, from Cornell yep. um, on a summer internship and he uh, just took off, right? So now he's a principal at one of the top three funds in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just like his career has completely took off. Or, you know, you follow these entrepreneurs through exit where suddenly they go from being this hungry and scrappy little founder who you knew in their jeans and t-shirt to suddenly landing a $500 million exit, right? And this person who you knew is just suddenly just worth $100 million. Right. Um, uh, or, you know, you work with extremely capable people uh, who it's hard not to benchmark yourself against and, and get a little depressed, right? So for example, one of the partners at, at my fund created a $5 billion company. <laughs> one, one of the other partners at my fund is a billionaire, right? So um, these are, these are kinds of things that you just, <laughs> you have to learn how to, how to manage uh, your ego and, and manage the um, temptation to compare yourself to other people if you're going to do well in this industry. Occupational hazard, don't compare. Um, having that kind of the grounding of knowing that a lot of that success is, yes, hard work and intellect, but it's also a lot of luck and timing. Um, yeah. Especially yeah. on the extreme, especially on the extreme levels. Um, you know, in certain cases, maybe not, but I think timing is, is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I guess maybe like just some final feedback, you know, to myself, which I try to live by right now, right? Like some actionable feedback is people get churned out all the time from this industry, right? Um, th this is more true in the junior level where, you know, your position is like a tier program after which you won't get kicked out, but you can't get promoted anymore. Right. Um, like, for example, I know that, yeah. Or like um, once you're out, you know, we've talked about recruiting is brutal. There's no structure. It's hard to get back in. Um, but even if you're a senior guy without an expiration date, most funds fail, right? Yeah. Uh, and even if you're in a stable fund, uh, you know, as, as we talked about before, even like these super stable CVCs can fail. Yeah. So I guess the, the biggest piece of advice you kind of have to live by is just tomorrow is not promised. Enjoy the ride while it lasts. You know, this might not be what you do forever. And uh, yeah, just kind of have a blast while you can. What do you think people can do when they when their fund fails? What the you know? Yeah, um, what, is some good, what is a good kind of? Let's say they let's say like your friend at the CVC, you know, mm -hmm. corporate venture fund, mm -hmm. he's not able to get back in. What could he pivot to that would be interesting? Could he go core in house to a company? This yeah, so he could go to, into corp dev. Um, corp dev is usually um, a downgrade uh, because. Financial VCs at the top, you get a piece of the carry, right? right. So you, you get a piece of the upside. Um, in most corp dev jobs, you just get a flat salary. Right. Uh, but, but it's pretty cushy, you know, like the hours are, are pretty nice. You have like company, big company perks, things like that. So yeah. um, I, I would say that's like one option. 
if you want to swing back into venture, you could always try to go to a smaller fund, but as we talked, or another fund, you know, uh, yeah. if you have connections, you can try to go to a bigger fund. Yep. But as we talked about, that's difficult. That doesn't always work out. Yeah. Um, jumping to a portfolio company is also a common move. So um, a lot of people, you know, if they come from the CA, CFA route, they might try to become a CFO of a portfolio company. Yep. Um, or they might, you know, go become the chief growth officer or something like that for, for a kind of product officer for, for like a, a portfolio company that's taking off really quickly. Um, and in fact, in many VCs, for example, at Andreessen Horowitz, uh, they will not recruit a partner, eh, not always, but they will almost never recruit a partner from within. There's a few exceptions, but usually they look for people who uh, have got operating experience in like a rock star startup. Um, so they look for people who basically just don't need the job. <laughs> like they've already become millionaires by just doing a great job at a, at a startup. Yeah. Um, so a for example, I know this guy at Andreessen, so he just, he just left to work for a portfolio company but he's very much planning on trying to get back in. It's just that on his roadmap, he knows that he has to have been an operator before they'll hire him as a partner. So that's kind of like an intermediary step that some VCs will take as well. That's interesting. So I, I bet you that whatever ship you choose or whatever uh, company you choose to, to ride is super important. <laughs> yes. Um, in that decision. Um, 100%. But anyways, anything else that I'm missing? It's been really fascinating, this discussion. I think I've learned a lot. Uh, no, I think this has been absolutely great. I had a blast. Um, I just, I guess I'll say that Wall Street Oasis has been hugely influential on me. Um, I'm really glad I could kind of, if I passed on something useful to someone else, like I'm really glad I had a chance to give back. Uh, this was, this was really fun. Awesome, man. Really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, Patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.